This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to uh, use 1 John 1 9. To, uh, 1 John 1 9 says that if we confess our sins, which means to simply admit or acknowledge our sins to Him, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open. In prayer, let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to gather together today to study your word and to be refreshed by the uh, truth of your word. We thank you that we have the freedom in this nation to gather together. We pray that you would continue to watch over us, watch over our president, watch over our other uh, civilian and military leaders, that they might make wise decisions that uh, protect us and keep us safe. Father, we pray for us as a church that you might continue to guide and direct us, that we might be responsive to the challenge of your word. We continue to pray for our missionaries, uh, such as Jim Myers for... Uh, Ralph LaRosa for George Mueller and others who are serving and taking the gospel to different cultures around the world. We pray that you would watch over them and take care of their various, their various needs. Now, Father, we pray that we would be responsive to the challenge of your word today, that we might not take this as simply an academic exercise, but recognize that it is you speaking to us and challenging us through the truths of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1, verse 16. Revelation chapter 1, verse 16. Now, the context is this appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ to the Apostle John on the island of Patmos. He has been exiled to Patmos by the emperor Domitian because of his impact on the community in Ephesus because of his witness for the Word of God and because of the testimony of Jesus Christ, according to verse 9. While he is on Patmos, he has freedom to uh, walk around the island and explore the island. Nevertheless, he is sort of under island arrest, and he can't leave. And one day, a Sunday on the Lord's Day, we're told in verse that he heard a loud voice as of a trumpet, told him to write down the things which he is going to be told in a book, 
and to send it to the seven churches to Asia uh, that are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And then we're told in verse 12 that he turns to look at the voice that spoke to him, to see who it is that is commanding him. And when he turned, he sees this vision. It's not what's actually there, but but it is, as it were, a, a, a parting of the veil between this physical world and the spiritual dimension. And he sees a a vision of the seven golden lampstands. And we know from verse 20 that the seven lampstands represent these seven churches to whom he is to send this book of Revelation. We know that. We know what these symbols stand for because of the Word of God. We're not left to just guess at what these things represent. You look through the Word of God and you study these things and you can see uh, that the Bible helps to interpret itself. And as he turns to look at these seven lampstands, he sees in the midst of the lampstands one like the Son of Man, which is a messianic title for the Lord Jesus Christ. And the overall image that he sees of the Lord Jesus Christ is one that speaks of his being the priest judge and specifically over the church. Now, he is the judge of all mankind, and he will judge all mankind at the great white throne judgment. He will come back to judge mankind at the second coming. But here there is a picture of him as a judge in relationship to the church, that part of his role during this present church age is the role of sanctifying, purifying the believer's through the local church ministry. It is the local church that has been established and ordained of God for the community of believers. Believers are not lone rangers. They're not to be out there running around on their own, trying to learn the Bible on their own, trying to live their Christian life on their own. But there's a strong dynamic of the body of Christ, and we saw that in our study of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. But the picture here is of Jesus as the Son of Man. He's clothed in garments that speak of his priesthood, but they're really garments that emphasize anyone of a high responsibility, someone in office. But the purity that's emphasized here reflects his integrity, which was gained during the first advent. He was born, of course, without the uh, imputation of Adam's original sin. He was born without a sin nature. He was born and he lived his life without any personal sin. That qualified him to go to the cross. And because he is true, true humanity, 100% human, as well as uh, pure deity, undiminished deity, because of that, but because of his humanity, he is qualified to be our judge. And so that's the imagery here. And all of these aspects emphasize that. He's clothed with a garment. Down to the feet, that speaks of his high office. He's girded about the chest with a golden band. Again, this emphasizes the high office and authority that he holds. His his uh, countenance is described a couple of times in verse 14. His head and his hair white like wool. That white speaks of its purity, speaks of integrity, speaks of his impeccability. His eyes are like a flame of fire, once again indicating omniscience. He sees everything, but it is a flame. It is a purification. 
His feet are like not fine brass. We looked at this word last time. It is a word that's only used twice in the scriptures, and that's or in in Greek literature, and that's in this uh, that's in this section in verse uh, in chapter one, and again in chapter three. So, how do we know what that means? Well, we're not sure, but it was some kind of a brilliant white metal. Once again, emphasizing the this purity aspect. The, the, the idea is that they've been refined. Once again, judgment. He was purified in the judgment on the cross where he paid the penalty for our sins. Not purification in the sense that he had sin and needed to be purified, but that he has gone through that judgment, and this qualifies him to be our judge. It's the principle of being judged by a peer. This is where we get the idea in uh <clears throat> Anglo-American tradition of a trial by jury, that we are judged by our peers, not by those who are above us or from some other station in life. Then we're told in uh, as well that he has a voice like the sound of many waters. And we got about that far last time, and we are continuing in understanding this vision that John had of the Lord Jesus Christ who is commissioning him to write this book and to send it to the seven churches that are in Asia. Now, as we look at these descriptions of the Lord Jesus Christ in the first chapter, we must realize that this is going, they are going to be reviewed again in the second and third chapter. The second and third chapters of Revelation comprise seven, the seven individual letters. They're very short. They're almost postcards to the, these seven churches. But each one begins with a salutation and a statement of the source of the, the epistle. And each one attributes various characteristics of the Lord Jesus Christ as displayed in this section, except for the letter to Laodicea. So this forms the backdrop for understanding those seven letters to the seven churches. For example... We will see that in uh, 2.1, the epistle is written to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. That comes from 1.16. Uh, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last, the one who died and came to life. And this derives from verse 18 of chapter 1. To the angel of the church at Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And this comes from uh, verse 16 of chapter 1. Then we have to the angel of the church in Thyatira, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze or fine brass. This is from verse 14b and 15a. Then to the epistle, to the letter to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, these are the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And this again is a reference to 116. And then the angel, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one shall shut, who shuts and no one shall open. This idea of the key is he has the key of Hades and of death 
in uh, chapter 1, verse 18. Then, in, uh, So we see in each of these letters, there's a reference back to one of these characteristics of his presentation in chapter 1, showing there's a unity here between all of these chapters. So the foundation is understanding the role of Jesus as he walks in the and moves in the midst of the churches. And this is a picture of Jesus' involvement as a priest judge in the life of the church throughout the church age. And the letters then to the seven churches where he outlines various problems uh, he praises them for positive things. He critiques them for negative things and certain failures. That flows out of his present ministry as the priest judge. All of this shows that there is a very tight uh, unity in this section, which shows that it had to have been written by one individual, and it shows a high a quality of, of just of literature. It's written well. Everything ties together perfectly. But further, all of these titles not only give us an understanding of Jesus as the priest judge, they form the backdrop for understanding Revelation 2 and 3, but they also demonstrate that for, that in this description, that it is teaching that Jesus Christ is fully God. This idea that Jesus Christ is undiminished deity is not some idea that was invented in the fourth century. This is the claim that you often find from the radical uh, left in terms of theology, the radical liberal uh, left, the Jesus Seminar liberals and others today. Uh, and you see this theology promoted in the book, The Da Vinci Code, the claim that the deity of Christ was just something that was developed gradually or in the 3rd or 4th century and made official by Constantine at the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., that this is not original to Christianity. And I've gone through a critique of that position. We'll look at it in more detail again as we study the uh, origin of the Bible and how we can trust the Bible. And what we'll see is that the Bible claims, and these... these uh, these various books that emphasize the deity of Christ were indisputably written in the first century. Furthermore, early church fathers, such as Irenaeus, clearly understood uh, what the canon of Scripture was, and they clearly understood the deity of Christ in the early to mid-second century. But this section shows that the writers of Scripture believed Jesus Christ was fully God. This wasn't something trumped up two or three hundred years later. And so we let's look at these. First of all, we're told that his, in this section that his head and his hair were white. This white wool, white as snow. This borrows its imagery for the Ancient of Days, who was God the Father, in Daniel 7, 9. So there's a clear claim to picturing or depicting Jesus as full deity in this passage. His voice is said to be as the sound of many waters. Again, this is a reference to the same, a similar phrase in Ezekiel 43, 3, where the sound of that voice, like many waters, is attributed to God. In Isaiah 44, 6 and Isaiah 48, 12, we have this phrase, the first and the last. Again, what is attributed to God in the Old Testament is now being assigned to Jesus in the New Testament. 
They clearly understood. I mean, the Jews, the person who's writing this is John. John's an Orthodox Jew. He is a monotheist. He's lost his mind if he's attributing deity to Jesus and to God in the Old Testament unless he firmly understands the doctrine of the Trinity. So he recognizes the full deity of Jesus Christ. Um, fourth, in this section, Jesus is the living one. It's a present active participle. I am the living one. And this, too, is borrowed from the Old Testament, a term that is uh, applied to God. God is characteristically called the living God in the Old Testament in passages such as Joshua 3.10, Psalm 42.2, and Hosea 1.10. And then Jesus says that um, I have the keys of death and of Hades. And in Judaism, the rabbis believed that there were three keys which belonged to God. A key is something that was used to open a door, and therefore it indicates control and ultimate power. And the rabbi said that only God has a key to birth, reign, and raising the dead. So this claim when Jesus says, I have the keys of death and Hades, he is saying, I have the power over life and death, I have power over Hades. Hades is not hell. Hades is the place that the dead went. It was an Old Testament concept that indicated the holding place for Old Testament saints when they died. They didn't go directly to heaven. They went to Hades. The reason that they went to Hades was because Jesus Christ had not yet died on the cross. Hades actually had several compartments. One compartment was known as paradise or Abraham's bosom. Another compartment was known as torments, and this was where unbelievers went. And then another part is a Tartarus, where the uh, angels who sinned in Genesis 6 were confined. But those Old Testament believers, when they died, went to Abraham's bosom, or paradise, and then when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he went down to Hades. He descended, not into hell like the, some people translate the old... Uh, Apostles' Creed, but he descended into Hades to announce to those who were lost that their condemnation was uh, was certain because of his death on the cross. And then he went to um, the uh, demons in Tartarus because his death on the cross also secured their condemnation. And then he went to paradise, and there he took paradise and transferred paradise from uh, Hades to heaven, so that the Old Testament saints could now enter into heaven because uh, the payment for sin, the redemption price, had actually been paid. In the Old Testament, they were saved provisionally based on the promise of future salvation. So the, the, what we see throughout this section is a clear understanding and identification of Jesus Christ with God. But you see that the assault today is on this very issue of the deity of Christ, the person of Christ. Who is Jesus? If you do away with who Jesus is, if you do do away with the deity of Christ, then you do away with Christianity. That's why there is that assault. That's why this is such an important issue. And this is why the devil seeks to destroy the doctrine of the deity of Christ. So we must take a stand here. And we must understand this particular doctrine. The Bible clearly depicts Jesus Christ as fully God from His birth. 
He is said to be Emmanuel, a term that means God with us. This isn't some doctrine that just got invented some two or three hundred years later to bolster the unity of the Roman Empire under Constantine or to give him power over the church. Now, all of that by way of background, let's get into verse 16. This image of Jesus, he had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun, shining in all of its strength. So this is the last part of the description of this vision of Jesus Christ. What does he mean? Well, in his right hand, he's holding seven stars. The right hand indicates the source of power and authority. So he, he holds this in his right hand. Having it in his right hand indicates control, indicates his place of authority over the seven stars. The seven stars, in turn, are, have been interpreted in a variety of ways. So often you will hear somebody who comes from a, a liberal background try to identify this in a cultural sense. Uh, for example, uh, in 83 A.D., uh, Domitian had a gold coin minted which pictured uh, one of his uh, sons that he had lost. And on the back of this coin, there was a picture of this dead child sitting on the globe of heaven playing with the stars. The legend on the coin read, Divus Caesar Domitiani, the divine Caesar, son of the emperor Domitian. The seven stars indicated seven planets a symbol of heavenly dominion over the world. The symbolism of these seven planets originated on the island of Crete, where the mythical god Zeus was born. And on Cretan uh, coins, uh, Zeus was depicted as playing with a heavenly globe, indicating his uh, rule over the earth. However, that is not the background for this imagery, because the Bible tells us what this imagery means. We're not left to just guess. We're not left to dig around in, in history to figure out what God might have meant. The Bible makes it clear. If you look at verse 20, he explains what this means. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So the Bible interprets itself. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, what does that mean? Now, this is a very difficult phrase to interpret. There are basically three positions that have uh, been developed over time in understanding the phrase, angels of the seven churches. Let me summarize them for you. The first is that this phrase, angel, refers to a heavenly being. That the term angel refers to an angel, my, my. It doesn't refer to a human being or human messenger, but it refers to a heavenly being. Now, the, the, the strength of this is that, first of all, the term angelos... That double gamma is it pronounced NG. That's where we get the, that difference. Angelos is used 67 times in the book of Revelation. 
Every other time that that word is used in the book of Revelation, it refers to heavenly beings. You know, if we take out the seven or eight, I think there's eight references in this section, uh, eight or nine references that are disputed. If you take those out, then every other reference, that's some 57 or 58 references, all refer to heavenly beings. Therefore, consistency, it's argued that based on consistency, this should be understood as an angel. Second argument supporting this is that you have them identified as stars. Stars equal angels. Now, this is an important observation in the text that few people even talk about. I've spent a lot of time researching and studying this in the last two or three months, I'm still not completely satisfied with any answer, but I haven't seen anybody outline this particular point. First point, stars are used in the Old Testament and the New Testament to describe the literal light-bearing bodies out there in the universe. So that's the literal use. That's the predominant meaning is the physical luminaries in the heavens. Second, flowing from that, the term a star is used to signify the number of the descendants of Abraham. That's how you'll find it used most of the time in the Old Testament, that your descendants will be like these stars of heaven. You will have as many descendants as the stars of heaven. Again and again and again, that promise was made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's reiterated to Moses. It's reiterated to, to uh, Joshua. It's uh, re- referred to again and again in the Psalms. You find this mentioned in the prophets again and again that the descendants of Israel will be like the stars of heaven. From that comparison, you have a, a third use. It's used two times in the Bible to symbolize or to represent the twelve tribes of Israel. Remember, Joseph had a vision where he looked at the the sun and the moon, and then the stars were bowing down to the sun and the moon. The sun and the moon were his parents, and then the stars were bowing down, and those were his brothers bowing down to him, and they represent the heads of the twelve tribes of Israel. So it's used that way in Genesis 37.9 and in Revelation 12.1, which is based on the same imagery as in the vision of Joseph or the dream of Joseph in Genesis 37.9. So in those two passages, stars represent the twelve tribes of Israel. Fourth point, the term star or stars of heaven is used to refer to angels, heavenly beings, in three Old Testament passages and four New Testament passages. The Old Testament passages are Job 38, 7. In Job 38, 7, God is speaking to Job and says that when he made the, laid the foundation of the earth, all the stars of heaven sang for joy. Well, that's not the physical stars. That's referring to the angels. It's used in a parallel construction, a synonymous parallelism in that verse with the term sons of God. So that indicates that the phrase stars of heaven refers to angels. In Isaiah 14, 13, uh, Lucifer, in his statement of, the, of his five I wills, his desire to usurp God's authority, he says, I will elevate myself above the stars of heaven. And that term refers to the angels. And then in Daniel 8, 10, 
the term stars again refers to angels. In four New Testament passages, the term stars refers to angels. And all four of these passages are in Revelation. In Revelation 1.16, our passage, it's clear in his right hand, he had seven stars. And in verse 20, the second use, it tells us that those seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, of course, we're, we're wondering what that means. So aside from that, we know that in 2.1, there is a reference again to the fact that he holds the seven stars in his right hand. And then in 12.4, we have the only clear, you know, if we take those three as what we're trying to decide, we'll take them out of the equation. In 12.4, we're told that when the dragon fell from heaven, his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven. And that is a reference to the fact that a third of the angels had followed Satan in his, in his fall. So in terms of metaphorical or figurative use, the term stars refers to either the twelve tribes of Israel, and that's clearly defined by context in only two passages, or it refers to angels. No, there's no other metaphorical use. Stars never refers to human beings. It never refers to human messengers. It never refers to prophets. It never refers to pastors. It, the only time it ever has a metaphorical application is to either the twelve tribes of Israel twice or seven times of in, uh, in the Bible to angels. Thus, it's clear in our conclusion that stars are a symbol for heavenly beings, not human messengers. So this is the, the problem we get into is the first solution is that, that if uh, angelos refers to heavenly beings... Or the second solution has been that we just simply translate it as messenger. That these are human messengers that have been allowed to come to the island of Patmos and they're going to take these uh, copies of this book back to, back to their uh, home churches in Asia. But once again, the problem is usage. This is the most important aspect of, of exegesis, is looking at word usage. That's where meaning derives. And let me give you an analogy here. This is, and we'll go over this again and again as, I try to, as I'm still trying to uh, clarify my understanding of this. The problem is that, let's, let's take an, a tangential solution. We get over in the Old Testament, and you come to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis 6, 3 says that the sons of God looked on the daughters of men and saw that they were beautiful and took them to be their wives. Now, we know that there's a lot of debate over this phrase, sons of God. In the Hebrew, it looks like this. B'nai ha Elohim. Okay, it's real important to understand this term. B'nai ha, that's a definite article. doesn't always have the definite article. Sometimes it's just simply B'nai Elohim. But it is the importance of this word for God as opposed to Yahweh. The Jews are called in one place the sons of Yahweh. And that's the covenant name that God used in the Mosaic Covenant with Israel. And that's clear from context. That's a different concept. But in the Old Testament, seven or eight times you have this phrase, 
Beneha Elohim. You have it in Genesis 6-3. You have it in Job 1-1, Job 2-1. Then you also Job 1-1, 1-7-2-1, and uh, some other passages in Job, Job uh, 38, 4-7. Uh, now, every single time you have this phrase, Beneha Elohim, or Bene Elohim in the Old Testament, it always refers to angels. It could refer to either holy angels or fallen angels. But it always refers to angels. Well, you, then you come to Genesis 6, 3, and it says that these angels took human wives. And the question is, well, how can that happen? I mean, they're immaterial beings. How can they become physical and take physical wives? And we've explained that when we did our study of Genesis 6, that angels had the ability to transform themselves into physical material bodies. And you see an example of it just a few chapters later in Genesis 17, when God, accompanied by two angels, comes to visit Abraham. And while he's visiting Abraham, the, uh, the, the text says that they came and Abraham made them comfortable. So you see this emphasis on physicality. He washes their feet. He washes their hands. He says, lay aside for a while and take a nap and rest, and I'm going to make a meal for you. And, of course, in those days, that didn't mean going to the refrigerator and popping out a, uh, a healthy choice dinner and putting it in the microwave. He's got to go out and kill a calf, skin it, butcher it, bring it in, build a fire, cook it. This is a task that's going to take several hours. And so during that time, God and these two angels who have taken, he, taken on physical form, they look and act just as if they're a human being. They eat, which indicates that all of the, they have all of the biological functions of a human being. And so the only way that we can explain, and it doesn't mean that it doesn't, it leaves all questions un, uh, resolved, but it doesn't. It leaves a few, you still have some questions about the dynamics of Genesis 6-3, but at least we understand that this is possible. But we have to make our conclusion based on how words are used. There are two other positions to explain that, but they don't hold the water because you, you have to base conclusions on word usage. You can't just go out there and say, well, gosh, that just doesn't make sense to me, so let me just randomly assign some other meaning to this because the, the meaning I can document doesn't seem to make sense to me. You understand what I'm saying? No matter where the clues lead you, you've got to stick to what the clues indicate which are the word studies, and you can't make up clues, make up interpretation of the clues just because it doesn't fit your preconceived notion of how things ought to work. Okay? That doesn't mean that it's not going to leave you with a few questions about how things operate. So the same thing is true. We take that analogy from that word study with, on sons of God in Genesis 6-3, and we come over into the New Testament. Now, there are a few examples in the Bible, of angels being, or the term angelos being used to refer to human messengers. John the Baptist was referred to in prophecy as a, uh, in reference to the Messiah, that a messenger will go before me. And that's the word angelos. And that passage from the Old Testament is quoted twice in the New Testament, Matthew and Luke. Uh, a couple of other times, uh, the word is translated messengers, referring to uh, human messengers. So, this is not something that is, uh, that's uncommon, but it's never used to refer to a pastor teacher. You can look it up in any lexicon. 
You can look it up in Arndt Gingrich. You can look it up in Thayer's. You can look it up in any Greek lexicon. And it never gives pastor as a meaning for angelos. You never have that word used in reference to a pastor. It is used in terms of just a, a messenger. Uh, and I can see by extension how you could get a pastor, and that may be legitimate. But the issue here in Revelation, though, is that these messengers are also identified as the stars. You never have human beings defined as stars. So when you come to the second option of defining it as a messenger, you run into a difficulty with trying to say that that's a human messenger when the, the parallel phrase used in the passage is stars, and that's never used of a human being. The third approach to try to resolve this is that the the stars, which equal the angels, are the pastors of these local congregations. And the question is, and it's a legitimate question, why is it that Jesus Christ would address these to, these epistles to, the angels? Why would he send this epistle to an angel when the body of the epistle itself is a critique of the ministry in the local church of human beings? What's the dynamic there? Well, the solution that I'm working on is a parallel that you see in this, in this, in this book. Let's go back and look at 1.1. The reason I'm going into this is because I know you've studied this in the past, and I'm sure some of you, as I have, been taught by the, the view, and it's a, it's a widely held view, that these angels are the pastors. But it's, it's a, it has no lexical support. That's the problem. I mean, it's just like, well, I can't make sense of the fact that it's angels, so let's make something up. It's got to be the pastors, because why would an angel be coming and speaking to this church? Now, maybe I'll come up with an answer for that. I keep beating my head against this brick wall all the time. I mean, that's the one that would, I would be more comfortable with, but, I can't find, but the evidence isn't there for it, and you have to follow the evidence. In one one, the revelation of Jesus Christ, that, as we saw, means the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. Things which must quickly take place. And he communicated it. How did Jesus Christ communicate it? By sending his angel to his servant John. So Jesus Christ dispatches a heavenly being, an angel, that's going to be partially responsible for communicating this revelation to John. Well, what actually, what happens? When we get into the description of what takes place, John says, I turned to look at the voice that spoke to me, and I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of them, one like the Son of Man. He didn't say he saw an angel. He saw who? He saw the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. And the Son of Man gave him direction, spoke to him, and said, Write down the things that you have seen, and the things that are, and the things that will take place after this. So you see a dynamic going on here where you have an angel involved and you have the Lord Jesus Christ involved, but they're not, there's no further discussion of how this angel 
is operating in the, in the process. Same thing is true in the Old Testament. Galatians 3 tells us that the Mosaic law was mediated by angels. Well, if you go back to Exodus, you don't see a mention of an angel anywhere. When Moses is up on Mount Sinai, God's given him the law, but there's no mention of an angel anywhere. What's going on here? What's going on It has to do with the angelic conflict and the fact that angels are witnessing and observing what's going on in human history and attesting to the integrity of God. And that's what I think, that's what I'm suggesting is going on here, is that these angels are being given the critique sheet for the local church that they're assigned to. And it's not that the human pastor is not getting it, he's getting it too. Because remember, this letter, this whole book is being copied and sent to each one of the physical churches at home. But there's an angel in heaven who has a responsibility in terms of uh, validating the integrity of God as it's being worked out in human history. And so the, the letter actually has a twofold destination. One has to do with the heavenly witness. And remember, you have this heavenly witness of angels in the Old Testament, the giving of the law. You have the heavenly witness, plus you also have the earthly congregation. And they're both getting a copy, as it were. It's a, it's, it's a duplicate. So you're dealing with two different dimensions. But it, it ties in the role of the angelic conflict that you've got angels who are watching local church congregations and as, as part of this process of validating the witness or testimony or deposition given by that local congregation. That it seems to be, to me at this point, where I am um, uh, the only solution that fits the evidence of the lexicon. Now, somebody can come up and show me one place in the Scripture where pastors are said to be angels, then we might have something to go on, but we can't just willy-nilly jump through a hoop. And, and you know, there's a lot of well-respected people who take the uh, pastor-teacher view. I'm just saying that you can't just take a view simply because it makes rational sense. See, that, then you fall into the same trap that liberals fall into, and that is judging the text by autonomous reason. And if you can come up with a, an explanation of how the dynamics work that explains the evidence, as I've done, then perhaps we're close to the truth. The bottom line is that these critique sheets are being given to each congregation for, uh, for their evaluation, for their self-evaluation, because the Word of God serves as a sharp two-edged sword, Hebrews 4.12. Its purpose is for the believer to go through self-judgment by evaluating his mental attitude, his thinking, his lifestyle on the basis of the Word of God. And the warning in this passage is that if you don't sit under the sharp two-edged sword, the Machaira of Hebrews 4.12 and do it yourself, then there's the threat of divine discipline through the broadsword, the Romphia, that's mentioned in this passage from Jesus Christ. So that gets us into the next phrase. Out of his mouth, or proceeding from his mouth, went a sharp two-edged sword. The mouth is the source of the mandates of Jesus, of the Lord. This is where he has communicated to us what his mandates are. And out of his mouth goes a sharp two-edged sword. Now when you hear the phrase sharp two-edged sword, 
the phrase that usually comes to your mind is the one that's in Hebrews 4.12. For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And the word there for sword is makaira. It's got an N on the end of it in the overhead because it's in the accusative case. But a makaira was a short, two-edged sword that the Roman soldier carried for close-in combat. It was used both as a defensive weapon and an offensive weapon. It was used when you were in close with the enemy. And the Word of God is is defined through this metaphor of a sharp two-edged sword. It cuts to the soul. It exposes what's going on in your life. Now, you can either sit under the self-judgment of the Word of God and respond to that as it critiques your thinking, your attitudes, your, your life, or you get the rompia. See, this, fra- this phrase in Revelation 1.17 is that out of his mouth goes a sharp two-edged sword, and the phrase is a, and the word there for sword is a rompia. This was the Thracian long broadsword. It was used to hack and to kill. And it's, the rompia is the sword that is mentioned all through Revelation. For example, in Revelation 19.15, as the Lord is returning at the second coming, he is pictured as having come as this. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, a rompia, that with it he should strike the nations. See, the rompia is used for discipline, for judgment. Uh, in Revelation 19.15, it is the rebellious, unbelieving pagan nations that are coming under the discipline of the judgment of God. In Revelation 1.17, it is the local church. It is believers who come under divine discipline. So your choice is, are you going to put yourself under self-judgment from the Word of God and deal with it yourself by application of doctrine? Or are you going to put yourself uh, through disobedience under the eventual harsh divine discipline from the Lord Jesus Christ? Here you see a comparison of the two different phrases. On the top you have the phrase found in Revelation 117. It's a rompia, distamas oxea. And distamas, indica- the die indicates two. Stamas indicates literally mouth, but it was an idiom for a uh, two-edged sword. And oxea is almost redundant. It emphasizes its sharpness. Uh, they have almost the same phrase in Hebrews 4.12. It's a makaira distamon. That sharp two-edged sword indicating that it cuts in every direction. Uh, Revelation 19.21 is another me- uh, uh, mention of this sword. And at that point, again, the context is still the second coming of Christ. It says, And the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. So you have this, this sword coming in two different judgments. One is a judgment that is related to the local church. And this is seen in the, uh, I believe it's the fourth letter. Uh, no, it's the third letter. The first is to Ephesus. The second is to Smyrna. Uh, the third is to Thyatira. Or the third is to Pergamon. These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. And then there's a warning in verse 16. Repent. 
They had to repent or change their mind about false doctrine. They were letting, allowing people in the church to uh, teach false doctrine. And so the warning is, repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth, the rompy of my mouth. So that would be divine discipline on a local church for compromising doctrine. The Lord Jesus Christ takes doctrine seriously. We see an emphasis throughout the, those letters uh, and the problem with those who don't take doctrine seriously and compromise doctrine. We live in an age today when people don't want to emphasize doctrine. They just want to emote. They just want to get together and say, well, let's all have unity. And the Bible talks about a unity of the faith. That is a unity of doctrine, not a unity of emotion or not a unity at the expense of doctrine or not a unity based on experience. It is a unity based on the truth of God's word, unity of doctrine. So the picture that we see in our passage in Revelation 1.16 is that out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. He is a judge. He is going to come and judge the local church. And then third, his countenance was like the sun shining in all of its strength. In other words, there's a brilliance to his appearance. This reminds us of the of his Shekinah glory as it was seen in the Old Testament when the Jews would follow the pillar of fire at night and they would see Moses come out from the tent of meeting and his face would glow with a brilliant glow because he had been in the presence of God and he would have to veil his face. The phrase, though, his countenance was like the sun shining in all of its strength, also comes from the Old Testament. It comes out of a phrase in Judges 5.31 which reads thus, Let all your enemies perish, O Lord, but let those who love Him be like the sun when it comes out in its full strength. So once again, we see that, that to understand Revelation, you have to understand the Old Testament. You have to see that He's not just making these things up. They all go back into Old Testament uh, references that uh, say something about Jesus Christ. So what's our summary on this verse? First of all, the appearance that we see here is of Christ is judge. He comes as a priest judge to judge the local church through divine discipline if they do not practice self-judgment from the glory of our Lord's humanity. And he, um, in our Lord's humanity, he was impeccable. Because he was impeccable, because he lived his life without sin, he's qualified to go to the cross and to die on our behalf. Because of his judgment on our behalf, he is now qualified to be our judge. And God the Father gives the judgment, delegates that judgment to Jesus Christ. It is not God the Father who judges us, but the Lord Jesus Christ. Second, in terms of his appearance as a judge, Revelation emphasizes his role in Revelation 19, coming as a judge of all mankind. So he will come and judge unbelievers. Second thing we see in this imagery is that the whiteness, the brightness, the brilliance of his appearance emphasizes his integrity, his perfect righteousness, that his impeccability resulted from his use in his humanity of the problem-solving devices, minus two. You know, we have confession of sin. He didn't need to utilize that. And we have occupation with Christ, which, of course, didn't apply to him. But he uses the other eight problem-solving devices in order to solve the problems in his life 
and to set the precedent for the Christian life. Because he consistently used those problem-solving devices, he was always in fellowship, and he was sinless. There was no personal sin. And the third thing we see is that this is a resurrection appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ to uh, John on the Isle of Patmos, the last uh, appearance, resurrection appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Bible. He had 17 post-resurrection appearances, and we will review those when we begin our study of Revelation next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning, to be challenged with these things, to recognize that, that uh, in line with the first uh, divine institution of human responsibility, we will be held accountable uh, before the judgment seat of Christ. But more than that, we will be held accountable in time for how we respond to your word. And if we do not respond uh, to the Machaira of your word, then you will discipline us with the uh, Ramphaya. And Father, we pray that you would uh, challenge us to take your word seriously, to apply these things consistently, to make your word, the knowledge of your word, the application of your word, the highest priority in our life. Father, we pray for anyone here who's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Right now, right where you sit, all you need to do is put your faith and trust in Christ alone. All you need to do is believe that Jesus died on the cross for you. You see, you can't save yourself because salvation demands perfect righteousness, sinlessness, and none of us can ever be sinless because God demands perfection. And I'm not talking about a few little peccadilloes or overt sins that you have, but I'm talking about basic sins such as arrogance, jealousy, envy, bitterness, gossip, slander, all these multitudes of sins that characterize each and every one of us. But Jesus Christ died for every one of those sins so that all you have to do is to trust in Him alone. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone, and the instant you believe that, you are born again, you are justified and you're given eternal life. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.